0: And I guess I will go ahead. I'm gonna have a great show, everybody. Thank you.
1: So you can let people in Kyle. Welcome everyone, we'll get started in just a moment. Welcome to Peace On, your source for inspiring conversations and information from thought leaders on topics related to peace building, equity, justice and personal peace. Uh, Tonight's call is being recorded and we're also live streaming on Facebook. And you can listen to any of our podcasts by going to our website, www.peacealliance.org, and you can click on the Peace Alliance on the Peace on Podcast hyperlink at the top of the page. And tonight we have a panel of speakers focused on voting rights and voting access. I'm going to introduce them by name, and then I'll introduce further before each of them speaks. And so uh, we have Diana Phillip. Hi, Diana, Uh, Amy Cohen, there you are, and Senator Bullard, great. And so our mission at the Peace Alliance is to empower civic action toward a culture of peace. We are guided by the five cornerstones of peace, community peace building, humanizing justice systems, fostering international peace, practicing peace in schools, and cultivating personal peace. And the five cornerstones are endorsed in the blueprint for peace. And signing the blueprint will notify your state and federal officials that you support policy priorities around peace building and violence reduction. And you want those priorities reflected in legislation. And so far this year, we've had 2.5 million contacts with elected officials just, just through signing the blueprint. And so again, if you go to our website, Uh, peacealliance.org, click on educate to learn more about the five cornerstones and advocate to sign the blueprint for peace. And the five cornerstones of peace and the blueprint for peace support the vision and legislation for US Department of Peacebuilding to be led by a cabinet level secretary. The goal of this department is to replicate and expand successful programs devoted to ending conflict, uh, ending violence, resolving conflict, and creating and nurturing conditions for peace. And this is not something new. This idea has been in our country since the late 1700s as a um, antidote to, uh, or um, I'm not, the word's not coming, but we had a department of war and somebody said we need a department of peace also. So it's been introduced into Congress multiple times since the late 1700s. So this isn't something, Something new. It's something that's been around since the uh, beginning of this uh, country. And so uh, Nancy is going to give us a brief update on the next Department of Peacebuilding action you can get involved in, and then I'll introduce our speakers. And Nancy has been working on this legislation for almost 20 years. She is on the Leadership Council and represents the Dep- Department of Peacebuilding. And so Nancy, I'll, I'll turn it over to you to update us.
0: Okay. Um, Well, as Kathy said, there's a bill in Congress calling for a cabinet level department of peacebuilding. And um, throughout the years, advocates for this bill have worked to build support for it at the community and organization levels and within city, county and tribal um, government entities and foremost to gain co-sponsors for the bill, uh, which is uh, sponsored by Congresswoman Barbara Lee, who is from the uh, Oakland Berkeley area in California. One way we build awareness and connection and support is our annual um, advocacy days, which is typically uh, held in Washington, DC, right around this time around International Day of Peace. This year, we're doing it virtually. And those meetings are already well underway and have been uh, really, really interesting. Today, we met with staff staffers from uh, Representative John Garamendi of California and Representative Brian Higgins from New York. Uh, John Garamendi served in the Peace Corps and has held uh, countless offices within California and at the national level. And uh, Representative Higgins is from the district uh, where the Buffalo supermarket mass shooting took place just last uh, May. Mm-hmm. Um, he's also been involved with peacekeeping abroad with uh, in Ireland and Afghanistan and all kinds of other places. So we have lots more meetings uh, happening uh, this week, uh, all week this week, and then next week also. Um, you all and anybody can support our efforts by amplifying, um, by calling members of Congress and tomorrow we'll be sending out um, e-blasts to I think 31 separate states with lists of members of Congress from those states. So if you're from California, you'll get all the people in California we're trying to uh, get a hold of. Or if you're from New York, you'll see the list of New York Congress people or Illinois, et cetera. So that would be really, really helpful if if you call um, any of those on that list to amplify our message. Um, A Department of Peace is building is about nation building and not just in the uh, international arena, but especially in this nation. And as one person put it on the call today, we have to learn to play well together and to value everybody if we're going to save our planet and our democracy and the right to vote and the right to live without violence and the future of our children so that's what peace building is about and um, that's one reason we need to make it a national priority and have a cabinet level so um any support we can get from you all and we'll i'll try to put some links in the in the um, chat too and then on international day of peace which is the 21st there'll be a special call about building um Building bridges, building connections across divides, because we all know this country is very divided. So we'll we'll uh, get some training from an an NVC trainer on that. So please join us for any of any of that, and thank you for everything all of you are doing. Thank you, Nancy, and we send out.
1: Um, Emails, uh, e blasts, the first Monday of every week that, that'll show everything coming up. So you can always pay attention to that to see what programs we have coming up. So I'm going to introduce our speakers. Uh, we're going to start with Diane, Diana Phillip, uh, and she's going to give us a broad overview of voting in this country. And then we're going to go to uh, uh, the micro level with Senator Bullard talking about the status of voting in Florida. And then we're gonna go to Amy Cohen and she's gonna talk about the youth vote. So I'm gonna introduce Diana first and then as each speaker, uh, right before each speaker uh, speaks, I'll introduce them. So Diana, and keep in mind, these bios have been so shortened. So you're just getting a little bit. Uh, Diana Phillip has been working in a variety of nonprofit organizations for over 35 years to protect and advance civil liberties and human rights. She earned her BA in criminal justice and sociology at Indiana University and began her career as a crisis intervention specialist and legal advocate for survivors of domestic violence, sexual assault, and sex trafficking. Uh, She's launched projects and nonprofits to address complex and controversial issues. And it's a passion for her. Uh, She launched a new nonprofit in 2008, the Abortion Care Network, to support and meet the needs of independent providers across the nation. She moved to Baltimore to finish her MS in women's and gender studies. Is it Towson or Towson University? Towson? Towson. Yeah, Towson University. She served as the first policy director for the LGBTQ rights group Free free State Justice and LGBTQ Legal Defense Fund, and has been Executive Director of NARAL Pro-Choice Maryland. From 2015 to 2001, she engaged in policy reform coalition building and lobbying the Maryland General Assembly with 11 original bills introduced and six passed into law. Like many organizations since the 2016 elections, Marilyn Nayrol became more involved with voting rights with allies allies such as CASA in Action, Progressive Maryland, and Everyone Votes Maryland. Uh, She's a proud Baltimorean, always seeking ways to support and encourage people to engage in advocacy. Currently serves on the board of directors for the Maryland Legislative Agenda for Women, Skate Park of Baltimore, and Mom Cares, as well as co-chair of the bodily Autonomy Work Group for the People's Commission to, de- to Decriminalize Maryland. So thank you, Diana, and uh, uh, we're excited to hear from you.
2: Thank you very much, Kathy. I, my name is Diana Phillip. I'm the Chief of Staff for an organization called Democracy Initiative. I'm going to share my screen and tell you a little bit more about what we do and what's going on with voting rights in the United States. Okay. Hold on.
3: Hold on folks,
2: hold on. Go ahead. All right, oh, there we go. I
1: just did
2: this today, all right. Okay, so the democracy initiative. We are a national coalition formed in 2013. So we have 75 national civil rights, environment, labor and civil um, organizations with a collective 45 million members in every state. We're fighting to realize the promise of an inclusive democracy. Our role we feel is to strike down structures that are barriers and they create racist, classist, and sexist oppression in the United States, and what we're trying to do is get more and more folks engaged in the democracy space, so that way everyone has a fair shot of being able to cast their ballot and have it counted, but also being able to advance and further our rights. The organizations that have joined us are incredibly diverse, and the idea was to have a united front in taking on issues that were stopping the individual advocacy issues of so many of these organizations and why they were founded. So originally we launched in 2013 to advance the reform of the U.S. Senate filibuster rules and succeeded in making sure that the executive and judicial nomination process was something that was not going to be subject to the filibuster rules. But we didn't have enough votes with the U.S. Senate in order to have it not apply to legislation which is why we're experiencing this congressional gridlock you might have been hearing about in the media and also seeing with your own organizations that you may be members of as well. So our key issues are safe voting, inclusive voting, countering dark money in politics, ending congressional gridlock and safeguarding democracy. So this is just a little laundry list of the things that we've been doing. We've been looking at expanding absentee ballot options, vote by mail, making polling sites and voting centers safer, countering voting, access to information campaigns, increasing voter access for those who are challenged at the polling sites, and also for folks with disability, returning citizens, new citizens, youth, ending gerrymandering, advocating for same-day online automatic voter registration, reforming election contribution disclosure rules, educating everyday voters to connect the dots and really feel ownership about about democracy so they can actually get involved in campaigns in order for us to realize the promise of an inclusive democracy safeguarding independent election administration and advancing changes in the U.S. Senate filibuster rules. But before I talk about voting rights in the United States and a study that we just released in April talking about voter confidence, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about the filibuster. We want to make sure that more people understand what's going on and the damage that's being done to our democracy because of the constant abuse of the filibuster rules. So what is it? Well, it's these rules that the U.S. Senate has that the U.S. House does not. The idea is that the U.S. House of Representatives, a majority of members vote on whether a bill should be considered for debate and vote, and the final passage requires majority. But in the U.S. Senate, it's at least 60 members must agree to hear that bill. And so that means if 41 senators do not want to risk a vote on legislation, they use this rule. And the final passage does require a majority vote, but we have this problem of having at least 60 members agreeing that there needs to be an official debate that won't one time go to, or the next step being go to um, a vote. So sometimes you'll hear Senator Sh- Schumer talk about filing for a cloture motion to end the debate to move forward with the vote. And you might be, you might be cognizant right now about how the Biden and Harris administration has been incredibly successful in making sure that we've had almost 80 judicial nominees go through without being subject to the filibuster because we removed those rules. And we have another 100 judicial seats that need to be um, filled. But legislation keeps getting passed. You probably saw this in the congressional gridlock. So the representation in Congress is really um, very different between the House and the Senate. The House is divided and determined by population. Every state has two senators. So the problem is that, We've got a minority party right now that's not allowing bills that even majority of United States people and senators would actually pass into law. Uh, An advance, uh, one of the uh, examples is in 2013, then the Manchin-Toomey bill was about background checks. And although 55 senators voted for this bill, it wasn't enough to vote for a debate for the bill. It wasn't enough. Although 86% of Americans passed the idea of background checks. So in 2022, the 50 elected Democratic independent senators represent 41.5 million more people than the 50 elected Republican senators do. So we call this the Jim Crow filibuster. And we identify and understand that there are and recognize that people across the United States have been voting every year for our legislators to go to the U.S. Capitol and pass the bills in order to advance and protect our rights. So you can see that there's a plethora of different issues that are being stopped by the filibuster. So why do we call the Jim Crow filibuster? Because historically it's been used to block liberal progressive legislation such as the 1957 Civil Rights Act, right? Um, But traditionally it has rarely been used, but of the 2,000 filibusters used since 1917, half were done just over the last 12 years. That tells you how incredibly divisive Congress is right now. And these are the different kinds of bills that have been stopped by the filibuster, Climate Action Now Act, Expanded Background Checks for Gun Purchases, uh, 5 for 15 Minimum Wage, the DREAM Act, the Women's Health Protection Act. And most recently in this past January, you saw the defeat of the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. So that's what the calls for reform are about. While the filibuster used to be active where senators would just hold the floor until a session ended, now there just has to be a threat of filibuster. And so even if something passes out of the house, Schumer may not put it on the floor for the Senate because he thinks it's going to die because of the filibuster. And this is what the congressional gridlock is all about. In this past January, everybody was very hopeful about the John R. S. Lewis Voting Rights Act. Um, unfortunately, although Schumer said we we're going to have like a four day debate about the act itself and a day uh, of talking about the filibuster, it ended up being 90 minutes before everyone said, yeah, no, we're not going to change the filibuster rules just for voting rights. Why is that so important? Because believe with this nation, national standards for voting rights is going to give us a democracy that we actually deserve. The voting experience of Americans really varies according to state or their zip code. It's a different experience for people um, since 2020. And we need more senators to reform the filibuster to pass national voting rights. We have a concern that if you had an adverse, um, a difficult, intimidating or confusing experienced during the 2020 voting cycle or even this past primary, you may not show up this November or even for early voting in October. So the question is, you know, will Americans voters have the patience and fortitude to participate in 2022? And this is where we need your help and we need folks to be more involved and more aware of what's going on. So while people were participating, unfortunately, and folks were really aware of what was going on January 6th of 2021, as folks, insurgents went into the US Capitol. Because of that incident, there were legislators dedicated to anti-voting measures and increasing voter suppression that went to their own state capitals and passed legislation to make it more difficult for everybody. So again, it's confusing for some voters because in 2020, there was one experience, but in 2022, it might be different. So what we did is a study and looking at you know, what happened since um, January 6th, looking at the state capitals about what kind of voting rights legislation has been passed, what kind of voter suppression legislation has been passed, and the main goal of trying to get a glimpse of what the expected voter confidence would be, because Americans really do rely on an election process that's effective in order to represent themselves and have their voices be heard. So how confident will voters be with this election process? And we looked at three different areas that would try to inform us of what those confidence levels might be. Experience of voters exercising their rights during the 2020 election, the state measures passed since the last election that will affect voter access and how each ballot will be processed and counted in 2022. So we relied on the work of several national and international experts in order to guide us on what is supposed to be a better democratic process for voter access and election processes. And so we collected the data from December uh, 2021 through January 2022, and all across um, the 50 states and the District of Columbia. We reviewed publicly available data from government websites, media outlets, anything about the electoral um, process. And because we have this national coalition, we're able to tap into some of the great policy research that is available through Common Cause and Demos and, other folks at Brendan Center for Justice and did a lot of um, heavy relying on the National Council of State Legislatures and Voting Rights Lab as well. Was over 150 sources were identified and listed in our bibliography. And I wanna tell you that in writing this as a lead investigator, I had no interest in writing a 200 page report because I knew nobody was gonna read a 200 page report. So what we need to do is figure out how we could break down these processes for people to understand just how complicated the election cycle actually is. So we identify 10 indices to evaluate the various aspects of electoral process. So for every state, what's it like for voter registration? Is it same online? Is it um, sync now automatic? (coughs) Voter identification, how cumbersome is early voting, safe voting, which is absentee ballot and then vote by home, vote by mail, because that had been expanded in 2020, but not every state decided to keep the same policies and laws in place from 2020. Mm-hmm. Acceptance, Logistical barriers to voting, the actual how do you go to a voting center and actually cast <sighs> the equipment security and auditing, the independent election administration certification, the external interference in voting, people who are intimidated at voting centers, people who got robocalls telling them not to vote, what the media did, what the protesting was like, what it was like to go to a voting center and see law enforcement there, and then the partisan influences with the political climate. So with each of these indexes, we um, identified key components. We created this three-point rubric of below, low, medium, high confidence level of a voter. And um, and then we we defined that level of confidence to the extent which eligible voters will be able to cast their ballots, have un- counted correctly without interference, and that all ballots would be properly counted, certified, and accepted. So how much confidence can we have in our electoral system? Well, based on our assessment, the answer is it depends on where you live. And so when we did this low, medium, high confidence rating, we identified there were 10 jurisdictions that earned high ratings, where it was relatively easy as a voter to access the the right to vote. Transparency, security, integrity about how the votes were counted, how election results were certified. And those included California, Colorado, District of Columbia, Hawaii, Maryland, Nevada, Oregon, Vermont, Utah, and Washington. What they have in common is that the majority of these are vote-by-mail states that have figured it out for the last decade that you can have a better vote um, voter turnout if you make it easy for people to be able to do that, but also understanding the right to go to a polling center, a voting center, and cast your ballot. There are 23 states that scored medium ratings, meaning that they had problems all through those 10 indexes, Sometimes they scored high, sometimes it was low, sometimes it was medium. And 18 states that scored low ratings with the bottom being Arkansas, Mississippi, and Missouri. So what was surprising? The number of states that hadn't passed laws protect voters and poll workers at voting centers. I had no idea until I did this study that there, were, um, there are states that have do not mandate that their poll workers be trained. I didn't know that there were states that had yet to ban weapons at polling sites. I didn't know that states didn't have any kind of guidance about the um, why law enforcement would be at a voting center. We have six states that mandate that law enforcement will be there, but yet the complaints from that were um, received at the eight six six our vote legal hotline through the election protection project. We're talking about people who would go to the voting center and say, "I don't feel comfortable here. There's law enforcement here. There's um, rumors about weapons," and I didn't realize how many states have yet to. Pass laws criminalizing electioneering, voter intimidation, obstructing voters from going into the site. There were some states that recognized the value of expanding absentee ballot, and vote by mail, and so they codify it. The idea of having drop boxes, the idea of allowing somebody to submit your ballot for you, while other states said, "No way, we're not. We're going to ban drop boxes. We're going to criminalize other people that submit your ballot for you." And so, using um, some of the data from the Our Vote Hotline. There were states where the voting lines were really long, and you didn't know until you actually saw that those people who complained about the long lines also talked about how the equipment was malfunctioning, how poll workers weren't trained, and they didn't understand provisional ballots and how to use them, that there, weren't, there wasn't enough signage, that there was all these problems that were at the centers, and it was appalling to learn how hard it was for voters facing mobility, visual and language challenges. The ones who did stand on the long lines yet had states that passed laws saying that they would criminalize people trying to help them be able to adjust being in a long line for many hours or to actually get into the voting center and find out that the equipment and that technology they were promised didn't exist for them to actually pass their ballot. And the limitations that states place on voter registration, voter ID, ProPublica did this great article this morning talking about if you do same day voter registration, In those states, 10% of a higher voter turnout. In voter ID, where you have some states that will not allow your college student ID to be your ID, but will allow your uh, carry weapons um, permit to do it. So just to to be brief, it's all online. And the the report, the overview is only 20 pages, and there's another 10 pages of the bibliography. So the study's divided into four parts. You've got the overview in this report, and then instead of the 200 page report, we have infographics. So we have actual um, a color coded map for you to find out where the states are in terms of voter registration and voter ID and external influences in voting. This is the overall infographics that shows you how our state, uh, how our, our nation is. And in terms of our assessment of voter confidence, red, yellow, and green. We also did and continue to update state profiles, all 50 states in DC. We take all the indexes and it, you know, with every piece of legislation, every piece of litigation, go in and update exactly what's happening with your state. And with these scorecards, we also have live links to vote 411, which is the League of Women Voters. If you wanna learn more about accessing the vote in your state, how to, If you wanted to look at the legislation that's passed, you can go through Voting Rights Lab. There's a link to the Election Protection Hotline, which is um, offered in all 50 states in DC and also with other languages. And democracymovement.us, which is another partner of ours. And you can learn how to be an advocate in your state in order to further voting rights. And the fourth part of it is um, this table that I'm always updating about new legislation so you can see the trends of what kind of laws have been passed. Now, these infographics and state profile serve as our roadmap to address the challenges of our access and election processes so we can realize that promise of democracy. And it really should not matter, oh, you know, your zip code and how you cast your ballot. So you can check out this this link and read all about it. Look up your state and see what it's lacking, what it does really well, and where the uh, room for improvement should be. Now, what can you do? Well, you can help all other voters be informed about these changes. When in doubt, send them to Vote411. Those who are overcoming challenges um, related to registering to vote or casting a ballot, tell people about the election protection legal hotline. These are lawyers and law students that are schooled and knowing what's going on in your state. They need this information to find out how to improve on processes and they want to help you be able to cast your ballot. Become an advocate for nonpartisan oversight of electoral processes. That's where that uh, democracymovement.us website would be really useful. Our organization is very interested right now in the next several weeks to see if we can get as many people as possible to step up and serve as poll workers, election protection volunteers or online disinformation disruptors. So we've got priority states. Matter of fact, our priority states for our coalition are the ones with the most competitive US Senate races because we're trying to get as many senators who are committed to reform the filibuster elected so we can actually get the filibuster reform done so, we can pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. So, that way it doesn't matter what zip code you're in, the voting experience should be the same for everyone. And so, there's going to be a link sent to you about how to sign up for more information. Our yeah. prior states right now are Arizona, Michigan, Missouri, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Virginia, and Wisconsin. Yeah, great.
1: Yeah, and Diana, and we'll, get that, yeah, we'll get that on Facebook and on um, in our e blast too.
2: We'll get that information out. Okay, and this is my last slide. Um, Please contact your U.S. Senator about the filibuster. Tell them about the law that was stopped because of the filibuster that is dear to you or is really um, something that's impacting your community. And please vote. Feel free to contact me, thank you.
1: Thank you. Wow, you did a lot of work on that. Okay, thank you, Diana. I'm gonna move to uh, uh, Senator Bullard. Uh, He hails from an esteemed educator, community activist, and legislator family. His mother was a member of the Florida House of Representatives from 1992 to 2000. She was later elected to the Florida Senate in 2002 and has continued to serve since that time. His father is also a former member of the Florida House of Representatives from 2000 to 2008. Senator Ballard received his BS in history education from Florida A&M University. Uh, From 2000 to 2017, he was a teacher at Coral Reef Senior High. In 2008, he was sworn into office as representative of Florida's District 118 and was subsequently reelected. And in 2012, Senator Bullard was elected to the Florida Senate. In his time in the Senate, he worked to stop online bullying bring tuition equity to aspiring citizens and raise the minimum wage. And he served in the Florida Senate until 2016. Uh, Currently he was hired as the political director of the new Florida majority in 2017. And he works to bring political education and awareness to underserved and often marginalized communities. He also works to push policy to positively impact these same communities. His work now, much like his previous roles, is to uplift people in a way that makes them the masters of their own destiny. He continues to amplify the voices of those often unheard. Thank you for being here, Senator Bullard, and it's over to you.
3: Thank you so much. And thank you to the Peace Alliance for for giving us the platform. Um, Diana, thank you for that content. And I couldn't help but notice uh, singling out Florida in, in the slide that was a great segue <laughs> into into the challenges that Florida faces. Uh for those who weren't keeping score, uh Florida was right there at number 39 on the list uh in in the bright red section. Um and uh we we've definitely faced our challenges. So uh just to kind of uh for the sake of brevity and to keep my com- comments concise, I'm going to Talk to you tonight through the prism of the good, the bad, and the ugly. Start off with the good. Uh, put the put put a positive foot forward. Uh, so, Florida over the last three uh, consecutive electoral cycles has been very good about passing citizen-driven initiatives uh, to both either expand democracy or or create allowances uh, for its citizenry. Uh, in a a substantive way. Starting back in 2016, uh, Florida did pass uh, an expansion of medicinal use, cannabis and marijuana in its state that again gave folks uh, a medical alternative um, to uh, alleviate pain and deal with uh, all the the issues that studies have shown that cannabis deals with. We are also able to capitalize on uh, that cycle Uh, to pass uh, a number of environmental protections that are now embedded in our constitution. Mm -hmm. In 2018, Florida saw the expansion, the greatest expansion of voting rights since the 1965 VRA with the passage of what we know as amendment four, which granted uh, expanded voter access for returning citizens. Uh, These are individuals who are formerly incarcerated. Um, We saw the eligibility of some 800,000 individuals uh, in the state that would would likely be able to get their voting rights back. And then in 2020, the state of Florida was the first state in the South uh, to pass a minimum wage amendment uh, to to move us in a positive direction and take our minimum wage to $15 by 2026. Uh, The reason I say citizen driven initiatives is because Florida does have uh, a provision that allows individual citizens in in the state of Florida uh, to petition as government and put a question uh, to the electorate uh, around certain things. These uh, things do find themselves embedded in our constitution because that is the pathway to get this done. So I know you're asking like, why couldn't this be done via law? Well, that's the bad part, right? <laughs> Since 2000, uh, the state of Florida, unfortunately, has passed a series of initiatives uh, through its legislative uh, through its legislative process that have been unfortunately restrictive of voting rights. Part of the why that happens is back in 2002, uh, we were able to pass a successful ballot initiative around class size. Um, you know, creating a space in which students could have a, a positive environment to learn that wasn't burdened with overcrowded classrooms and lack of access to technology. Uh, Unfortunately, since then, the legislature has uh, tried to, again, kneecap a number of those initiatives. That initiative passed with about 58% uh, of the vote at the time. You know, simple majority, 50 plus one, as we've always kind of known democracy to be. Shortly thereafter, the legislature decided to pass their own ballot initiative that created uh, a 60% threshold in order to move ballot initiatives in our state. That means that anything that passes has to be passed by 60% of the electorate. They've also now made attempts over the last few years to expand that to 66.34%. Um, and interestingly enough, going back to amendment four, part of the reason why they picked that number they would argue is because it represents an equal two-thirds vote in order for passage. But coincidentally, uh, it took 65% of our electorate to pass Amendment 4 and expand the voting rights of uh, of our returning citizens. So, you know, call it coincidence, call it conspiracy, it's all the same in Florida. right? Um, going back to the, the bad, unfortunately, is that uh, we've seen a consolidation of our government Uh, which led to now an appointed secretary of state. Uh, For many of you, you know that the secretary of state is uh, the person who kind of governs or looks after voting rights, elections, uh, and such in our state. We used to have an elected version of that. Now that office is appointed by the governor. If you recall back in uh, 2012, Watching the news and hearing about eight, nine hour lines in Florida, that had to do with legislation that was passed in 2010, in the uh, 2010 and 2011 legislative bodies uh, that, again, created unnecessary uh, lines, unnecessary and cumbersome laws that really kind of restricted voter access, uh, really as an affront to then the election of Barack Obama and the need or the desire to want to make him then a one-term president. Fast forward uh, to to where we find ourselves now. Uh, you know, as Floridians, we, you know, we were always hopeful that it could never be worse. But the ugly uh, of the last few years and and the, the current administration has been one that has been very deliberate and very intentional around their restriction around uh voting rights and really constitutional rights. Um, in 2021, uh, we were uh, unfortunate, unfortunately in our state, uh, S- sorry, let me, I wanna make sure I get those right. SB1 was passed, which was uh, a restriction on uh, the ability for individuals to protest, right? And so, I'm sorry, HB1. And, and for those who know about that, the anti-protest bill uh, came in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd um, and a desire to wanna see folks uh, rights restricted from taking to the streets and protesting both their local government as well as their state government around significant changes. We also saw the passage of what was what is to be known as SB90. SB90 was again, uh an unfortunate assault on voting rights here in the state of florida this led to uh the inability to pass out water uh to folks in line and if you've ever been in an august primary in florida you know that water should be everyone's concern and for some reason they chose to do that it also unfortunately led to the restrictions some restrictions as relates to our vote by mail system uh as well as uh restrictions around the use of drop boxes here in our state. Um, now this is uh, should not come as a surprise to many Floridians, but what was interesting about that particular bill was that on election night in 2020, our governor said that our system worked perfectly, that our established vote by mail system was uh, without flaws and uh, and had no flaws and no problems as are related to it, the outcome being the one that he desired you know his candidate of choice was was victorious that night. so it 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 shows and airs on you know it shows a level of, of hypocrisy when someone then comes along and creates new laws to create restrictions on the very system that they said was working just fine just a few months before to add insult to injury and to kind of triple down on the ugliness that is the restriction on voting rights. Most recently, uh, there was the adoption and creation of what is known that we affectionately call the election police (laughs) here in the state of Florida, right? Uh, This was Senate Bill 524, passed this past legislative session that creates a office uh, within the Secretary of State's office that now has authority to go after folks for for what they view as voter fraud. Uh, And more recently, if you were paying attention to the news, Are paying attention to the news, uh, there was the mass arrest of 20 individuals, all of whom were well over the age of 60, as a matter of fact, who were being arrested for what uh, the governor calls acts of voter fraud. Now, the problem with this And the problem with uh, the statement that these are acts of voter fraud is that the system itself is still governed by the state government. Meaning that these individuals believed that they were eligible to vote, applied to vote. Now the state was responsible to tell them that they were ineligible to vote. The state uh, shirked that responsibility, failed to inform those individuals that they were not allowed to vote. And then when those individuals cast ballots, in some cases years, in some cases months later, the state then turns around and says, you were illegally casting a ballot and therefore committing voter fraud. Uh, now, uh, I'm no lawyer, nor do I play one on TV, but uh, from all, for all intents and purposes, that is what I believe to be. And many of us who watch watched Perry Mason, Law and Order and the like, recognize as entrapment <laughs> when when someone, you know, coerces you into uh, committing a crime uh, and then tries to take no responsibility for that. Um, and so that is some of the many things that we're fighting here in the state of Florida. I'd be remiss if I did not tell folks because I did mention in the good, the expansion of voting rights for our returning citizens. Unfortunately, Uh, the state does not believe in, uh, you know, reflecting the will of the people um, by their own, uh, the the passage of their own laws. And so they did institute what I call a poll tax on those individuals by now requiring uh, the repayment of what they call fines and fees in order for those individuals to get their voting rights back. So now you have created a system in which uh, a small segment of the population now has to pay a fee or a fine or you know remit those those fees or fines back to the state in order to uh vote. Uh that is why I refer to it as a poll tax, because that is in essence what a poll tax is, if you uh know your history. The other challenge with that is that it is now linked and tied to changes in local and state law as it pertains to what is a fine what is a fee to give you an example and where you oftentimes need to watch out for copycat laws in your own state is that uh for individuals who are on probation or parole they can now be taxed on the urinalysis analysis or drug test that they are being uh that are being administered so i want you to think about that for an individual to get a uh to, you know, as a part of their probation or parole, may be required to take these drug tests. And now someone is saying that you are now going to be assessed an additional fee for that. And then the state is now saying that uh, once that accumulates, you still owe the state back money for those very fees uh, that you've incurred trying to get off of probation or parole. And so it's those kind of incremental uh, death by a thousand cuts that are really kind of undermining our ability to move democracy forward uh, in the state of Florida because you just have what feels like a continuum of uh, of bad policy coming down the pipeline. Um, and oftentimes uh, I like to jokingly in the darkest way possible, say that Florida is the place that incubates bad ideas for the rest of the country. And uh, I just wanna just remind folks please do be on the lookout for these kinds of things happening in your own backyard. Thank you uh, for the the time, Kathy.
1: Thank you, Senator Bullard. Ah, such rich information and so much. Um, And so we're gonna hear from Amy Cohen next, and she's gonna tell us about the youth. Uh, Amy brings a wealth of experience in service learning and civic engagement to her role at George Washington University, where she serves as executive director For the Honey W. Nashman Center for Civic Engagement and Public Service. She served for nearly a decade as the Director of the Federal Service Learning Program, Learn and Serve America, at the Corporation for National and Community Service, which is also the parent agency for AmeriCorps and Senior Corps. Uh, Prior to coming to the GW, uh, George Washington University, she served as Associate Vice President for US programs that save the children. Uh, She holds a BA in sociology from Brandeis University and an MA in history from the University of Pennsylvania. And I was curious as to uh, what the Honey W. Nashman uh, Center for Civic Engagement and Public Service, who Honey was, so I looked it up and she um, has been in higher education for more than 50 years including a 43-year tenure at at George Washington. Throughout her life, she's been active in human rights, social justice, and building community, and is currently active on several boards related to these interests. And prior to her her retirement, she was the director of the Human Services and Social Justice Program in the Sociology Department. So um, welcome, Amy, and uh, uh, it's over to you.
4: Thank you so much. It always brings a smile to my face and a gladness to my heart to hear anyone talk about Honey Nashman, who um, literally was texting me this evening as we were talking. Um, So she's very active and very engaged. Um, I am going to try to share my screen and see if I can make that work. Um, So please bear with me. Um,
1: Oh, look at that. Too bad we didn't have Honey on. We could have asked her on.
4: What what are you seeing? Uh, GW Votes. All right. And you can see, can you see the full screen? Yes. Excellent. I'm amazed at the success. Um, So uh, GW Votes is GW's effort uh, to engage all of our students in voting. Um, We are part of a large national network of folks involved in voting. But before I get into that, I I just want to talk a little bit about what the Nashman Center does and sort of why um, we're the ones who are taking this on. Um, We are part of a movement that probably began in the 1970s and 80s for colleges to have civic engagement or community engagement centers that engage uh, the college students and faculty in partnership with local community. Um, And so we have been, um, the National Center itself is only about 12 years old, but are part of a 25 year reign uh, of these programs at GW. And our focus really is on using the resources of the institution um, in support of the DC community and beyond. As um, focus grew on voting, across the country in about 2014, um, we joined with local, with national coalitions all across the country uh, to focus more on civic engagement, um, as well as um, direct service community engaged scholarship where we uh, use our research in um, a variety of other kinds of service. Um, so why focus on the youth vote? Um, it's kind of like, it's kind of like why you rob a bank because it's there. And because frankly, um, if you can see here, it was an under, underused uh, part of the electorate. Um, young people had have the, have the greatest potential to grow their voter participation. Um, and as you can see, uh, voter turnout has grown over time in the elections. Obviously 14 and 18 are the congressional elections But in 16 and 20, um, the national average for voting has grown considerably because of the attention that's paid to voting. Um, And there are currently probably a dozen organizations that are focusing on the youth vote alone. Um, I I will, when this is done, type them all into the chat, um, but they include... um, the Students Learn, Students Vote Coalition, the All-In Challenge, National Voter Registration Day, the Andrew Goodman Foundation. um, And then there are a couple of organizations that are doing research about youth voting. Um, Two of the strongest are actually at Tufts University, and I'm gonna share some research um, from the National Study of Learning, Voting, um, and Engagement, which is at Tufts University. They started out in 20. 14 collecting data from colleges and universities all across the country um, on their voting rates and they were able to access uh, institutional data so that they could match and figure out who was voting and then where they went to school and not only where they went to school but who it's it's uh it's not personal data but you can find out what uh, programs they're enrolled in so we know that the math students, for example, in 2016, were not voting in as high a rate as the education students were voting um, at GW. Um, so in, you can see that there was a huge growth between 2016 and 2020 um, in voting. For all colleges, they they looked at 1,200 colleges across the country out of the, is about 5,000 colleges, um, 53% Of students voted in 2016, and 66% of students voted in 2020, Um, and there uh, there's lots of good reason for that. Um, But very much the state of the country at the time, but also all of these efforts to drive uh, voting. In the small print, um, you can see that GW just because you know. Um, as I'm from GW, we we were above average. Um, we um, raised the voting rate almost 12 points um, to 69% um, and really did this by targeting um, students at the youngest ages. So from when they came in as first years to really capitalize on their excitement about being eligible to vote for the first time. Um, and we saw a great rise in their voting. Um, the other thing that we did, and I'll talk a little bit more about it later, but because many colleges and universities bring in students from all across the country, we have to think about voting, not as what happens in November, but as what happens starting in September. Um, and you know, the pandemic, of course, brought that to light for all of us, but for college students and many other people, Um, It really is um, something that has to begin. We're starting next week with National Voter Registration Day on September 20th, where we are going to be uh, focusing on getting students out to vote and finding ways to help them to um, do their voting absentee. Before I dive into that, um, we also, one of the things that is absolutely fascinating is that the history of youth voting, um, or the history of voting really, kind of shows this steady um, rise in voting rates. As you age, your voting rates have gone up over the years. But in 2020, that um, everybody rose, but um, 18 to 21-year-olds rose the most. Um, and at George Washington University, actually we, we saw not a dip, but sort of a flatness in the uh, 25 and ups, um, but the young people were really voting. Uh, more. And we are excited about this because, as this says, voting's habit forming. Um, once you begin to vote, we hope that that will become a habit that you are able to carry on uh, time after time. And of course, um, there are barriers uh, to that voting. I will say, I, I did take a look at uh, young people in Florida, uh, just to see whether there were some good news or bad news for Florida, and actually, it, it's pretty good news. More than half of all uh, young people in Florida, fifty-four uh, percent, voted in twenty twenty. So it's they're on the on the high side. Um, so uh, one of the things we've got to, in order to figure out who is voting, we got to figure out uh, why people don't vote and to drive that up. And some of the things that are really very simple. Young people don't know how to vote. They've never seen a voting machine. They don't know what happens when you go into that room. Um, And so a lot of what is being done to support young people voting is literally bringing voting machines to to them so they can see what they are. We've partnered with the DC Board of Education um, to bring a voting machine to campus so people can try it out. Um, And other organizations um, across the country are doing that. Uh, really just bring a voting machine um another is that nobody asks students to vote it's very we find the same thing in civic engagement and service if people have to be asked by someone that they, someone that they trust and someone that they care about and so we are um working to do that as well um and then another barrier is that young people um don't well this isn't confusing they don't think they know enough they are um The process and the logistics are difficult, and they don't trust the system. Particularly now, I think um, again some of the things that we that uh, Diana and Senator Bullard talked about are things that lead people to lead our young people especially to have less faith in the system, Um, and it's it's an even bigger reason why we have to overcome some of those barriers, Um, and a lot of the issues that they don't care about. Um so I guess before, before, let me talk see what I'm doing here. Yeah, before we talk about that, let me talk a little bit about national voting. So we have a tool that we use at GW called TurboVote, which is um it's an off-the-shelf tool, but also vote.gov, which is a free tool, can do the same thing. Um, you can go in and find out what you need to do in your state, in your particular congressional district to vote. Um, and the turbo vote tool will actually, um, I, call it, I, I say that it nudges people. Um, it is really what it does is it, you go in, you put in your address, and it will tell you how to get, ask you how you want to vote, will give you all the information you need to, if it's mail away for your absentee ballot, you'll do that. Um, if, it's, if you're able to do that online, it will show you how to do that. And then it will bother the heck out of you by sending you text messages uh, until you've done it, until you say, yes, I've done it. Um, and I you know, I use it, um, and it reminds me, OK, today's election day. I've got to go out and do what I'm supposed to do. It's the primary day. Um, and we found that that has helped to increase voting for students, particularly when they don't live in the District of Columbia. Um, we, we encourage students to vote wherever they choose to, but as you well know, uh, the District of Columbia is disenfranchised. Um, and so we encourage students to vote in their home states if they live outside of the District of Columbia so that they can participate um, in uh, elections other than the mayoral council and school board elections and the presidential election. Um, so we, when we talk to students, um, we Again, we really try to engage them one on one to the extent possible through social media if we have to. Uh, But we've discovered that Gen Z voters care about issues and they care about um, an empowerment message. So they really want to vote because of the climate or they want to vote because of racism or they want to vote because of police brutality. And those are the the reasons that they're coming out to vote. Um, And they want to vote because what they think matters. Um, and we really have to engage them in this. Some of the messages that I think come from the uh, from both political parties are missing that um, emphasis on what young people care about, and it, and they, they always have, um, but it's time to change that. Um, just some of the ways that we do this: um, we are we have a large group of students and of students who um, we call ambassadors who go out and help um, and talk to people about voting. Um, We table, we go to campus events. Um, But one of the reasons I'm talking about this is colleges across the country are doing this. GW is by no means the only one. Um, And so I would encourage um, folks on the call today to really think about how they can help colleges in their area um, to go out and, and do this or to work with high schools. The other thing that we've begun to do is to work more and more with high schools on this. And we encourage students to make a plan to vote um, and in all a variety of different ways and do their research. Um, Here are the vote.gov, GWU TurboVote. There's a wide variety of ways that they have to go to get involved. Uh, But we encourage all the students uh, to do that and to give them the information that they need. Just one more thing that I would say, there are lots of students um, who we work with who are not eligible to vote. Um, And so we want to encourage them to become involved in the civic engagement process in whatever way they can, whether they're uh, too young to vote or um, or, are not citizens in the United States. Um, We want them to become involved by being poll workers, which in the District of Columbia, you can do regardless of your citizenship status. And you can do it 16 and up. You can actually even do it a bit younger. Uh, In Montgomery County, I think you can do it um, as a middle schooler. Um, so really encourage people to think about the ways in which young people can get involved, um, in a variety of ways. And I think that's about it, yep. Wonderful.
1: Well, this gives me so much hope to see all the work that's being done and all the work that we can all join in doing. And uh, this is a program that I have been too ambitious in planning. and I so am so sorry. We could have heard so much from all of you. And it's uh, eight, It's uh, one minute after our call in. So I'm going to go ahead and end our call. And if you have any questions you'd like me to get to the speakers, you can email Kathy, K-A-T-H-Y, at peacealliance.org. Or you can email DN, D-I-A-N-E, at peacealliance.org. And we will get all this information that uh, Diana presented for ways to get involved, and that Amy provided for the youth and anything Senator Bullard wants to us to get out. We will get that out in the eblast and on Facebook. I'm so grateful to all of you for being here, uh, our speakers and our attendees. This has been been very rich and heartwarming, and I'm just so grateful we have people out there doing the work that all of you are doing to to safeguard democracy. And we were talking on one of our planning calls that if everybody voted, if everybody was allowed to vote, we would have a different country and we would have a true democracy. So um, yeah, do what you can to help uh, get everybody out to vote. And we will see you all next month. Thank you. And if you love and benefit from our programs, consider donating. We currently have a goal of raising $20,000 and enrolling 22 new monthly donors. If you miss any of our podcasts, listen to them on our Peace On podcast page. Uh, Go to the website, and it's at the top of the website, www.peacealliance.org. Good night, all. Thank you for joining us today at Peace On. We hope that it inspires you to engage in dialogue in your larger community. Peace On is brought to you by the Peace Alliance found at peacealliance.org.